We uh, go ahead and get going, and um, it's great to see you all this morning. We have handouts on the way in, handouts on the way in, and um, okay, well, this is the Rector's Forum, and I guess if last year, last spring rather, uh, the the class was on uh, the end of the world. It was on the book of Revelation. Uh, this year, we are beginning with the beginning, with Genesis. And we're talking about um, a number of key concepts as we work through the grand narrative of Scripture. But there are a few presuppositions that I want to name, and then also just some kind of housekeeping matters to address. First of all, um, often I will have handouts for you, but I won't always, and I encourage you to bring your Bible, or you know, you can get an app on your phone as well that allows you to follow along. And um, we are going to be talking about the big idea of Scripture. This presupposes that Scripture is not just a kind of disparate collection of books but rather a coherent, unified story that has been written by human authors, to be sure, who were moved by the power of the Holy Spirit to write and to collect oral traditions and to bring them together into what has become the canon of Scripture. That term canon just means simply rule, the the collection, what what is Scripture versus what is not Scripture. There were many devotional writers in the ancient Near East who were not included in the canon of Scripture. But the idea here is for us to drill down into some of the key concepts, at least, that will unlock the story of Scripture. And the title of the class is, What's the Big Idea? And the problem with calling it, What's the Big Idea, is that you begin to get the idea that this is simply about ideas, which is not really the intent. But ideas matter, and ideas have consequences, of course. Nevertheless, the point of addressing the text, of, of unpacking the text, of thinking through those key concepts that help us understand the narrative, the point is to inhabit the story. So this is less like a phone book, And it is much more like the script of a play of which the final act has not yet been written. In fact, the church is the unfolding final act of Scripture. This is a a metaphor that I borrow from the Anglican New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, that God has created, that there has been a fall, that God entered into his people through covenant, and kingdom, that Christ came, that Christ inaugurated his continuing incarnation on earth, the church, and that we are the unfolding of God's final act under the authority of Christ. So it's not really about ideas at all. Nevertheless, it was a catchy title. So what's the big idea? Today we're talking about 
a phrase, you may not have heard this before, uh, the Latin is imago Dei, and this simply means the image of God. This is where we're starting off. To give you a, a forecast of where we're going to be going, next week we'll be talking about covenants. The following week we will not have Sunday school because it's our, our feast day, the feast of St. Francis, and that day, this has nothing to do with Sunday school class, it's just important for you to know, that day we do not have a 9 and 11, 15 service. We combined them once again, and we do it just an 8 and a 10 o'clock, and then we'll have a gathering afterwards, a lunch. So keep that in mind. If you show up at the 11, 15, you're just in time for lunch. <laughs> and then we will move into talking about atonement and sacrifice. I was watching not too long ago... Um, the movie Gladiator. Actually, this was several years back now. I was watching the movie Gladiator. Have you all seen that movie? Yeah, okay. There's this scene that is, well, there are many scenes that are very bloody in that, but there's this one scene, it's a, a kind of a Roman sacrifice of this, you know, cow, and the, the person is under the blood that is just pouring over them. That image is an image that is foreign to us, but it is not foreign to the pages of Scripture. What on earth is the concept of sacrifice and atonement about? Why would God need doves and lambs and other animals and his son to be slaughtered? Atonement, sacrifice. So we'll unpack that a bit. We'll talk about the law. What is the law? The law is referred to as many things in Scripture. And there's the Jewish law, there's the Torah, there's the perfect law of freedom, which the epistle of James speaks about, and there's still more. What role does the law have in our life? We'll talk about the concept of the Messiah. We'll talk about heaven and earth. We'll talk about the biblical concept of justice. And then we'll talk about exile. Exile and the good news of God. So today we're talking about the image of God. And just by way of reminder, we have several handouts for those of you who've come in. They're just up front. Let's get going. What is man or what is human? What is human? This is a perennial question which different cultures have answered in different ways. What is a human? You might remember in the movie Zoolander, because I know that's your favorite movie, that Derek Zoolander looked down in a moment of disgust in a puddle and asked, who am I? This is the perennial question, the perennial question that people ask of themselves. Indeed, culturally, we are asking this question presently. What is a man? What is a woman? What is it that defines people? These are most basic questions. So these pictures here are human faces, as you can see. But they actually were created by artificial intelligence. They're not real pictures. And in fact, this question of what does it mean to be a human, it's only becoming more, slipper, more, more slippery, more slippery, right? It's a difficult question in one sense, and in another sense, it's not difficult at all. So God made us in his image, and we are very good at remaking throughout the pages of Scripture and in our own cultures God in our image. And indeed, we are remaking humanity in the images that we would like. But 
in the pages of scripture, anthropology, what it means to be a human, actually arises from theology. Not the other way around. That God is. God exists. And as the psalm says, in your light we see light. It's in light of the existence of God that we see everything else clearly. I think this is the understanding of Scripture. And so our understanding of humanity comes necessarily from our understanding of divinity. Psalm 8 is here on your sheet, if you grabbed one on the way in. If not, they're just back there at that table. I'd like for us to read this together. So I'll start off and we'll just read it all together at the same time. Just Psalm 8. And so we say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, Yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Nothing like the good old King James. What do you recognize? If you were trying to answer this question, what does it mean to be a human? What do you recognize from Psalm 8 that might give us a clue regarding what it means to be a human. Just call it out. A little lower than the angels. Caretaker of God's creation. Yeah, so we're contingent. We are not our own maker. That's a really excellent point, yes. What else? What was that? God is mindful of us. God has turned towards us. I think there was someone else. That we're special. special. That's right. Crowned with glory and honor. Crowned with glory and honor. honor. That's a remarkable phrase. What else? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if, well, I'd be interested to hear 
your thoughts on that. I do have my own thoughts here. Um, but does anyone want to take a guess? Take a stab? So what's going on here in verse 2? With out of the mouth of babes and sucklings has thou ordained strength. Mm-hmm. 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 Jesus welcomed the little children. Yeah. Correct. Aaron? Yeah. That's great. Anything else? Yes. Yes, yeah, that's right. I think I think it's all of those things. Yes, I think that throughout Scripture you see God doing works uh, of might through um, through surprising vessels, and of course God taking on human substance, becoming vulnerable in a womb. Um, and, um, you know, there, there is the prophetic bit, too, which is that, um, of course, all of Scripture, to some degree, points towards Christ and speaks of Christ, and so I think that there's a bit of that going on as well. Um, but in the kingdom of God, there's no small thing. God is constantly working through small things to do big things. Think of a grain of mustard seed, if you have faith like this. Um, uh-huh. Thou might have the enemy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and of course, through the incarnation, through the mouth of a babe, through a child who has to have diapers changed and learn how to eat, right? God defeats evil. And so I, I think that um, this is kind of a, we could lift it up into that truth as well. Um. And I think it's also just speaking to the hubris of humanity. God doesn't even need humans to praise him. He can lift up rocks that shout out his name. Scripture tells us. And so there's a sense in which God doesn't need the mighty soldier. He doesn't need the strength of horses. You know, through the mouths of infants, God can, can execute his will. So anyways... Um, Let's move on here. Psalm 8 gives us a vision of what it means to be human, to have a vocation as a human. And that word vocation is going to be really important for us as we think aloud about this term, the image of God, the imago Dei. There was an early church thinker, Irenaeus, who said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That was Irenaeus. And he was in part speaking about Christ, God who had become incarnate in human flesh, but he was also talking about, in one sense, all humans, that all humans are caught up in a vocation, which is what God intended from the very beginning to bring healing and wholeness, to be agents of mercy and compassion, to exercise what we hear in Psalm 8 as a word that is called dominion, to exercise Dominion. This is not a very popular word these days. But we have to understand that word, I think, 
not according to the abuses of dominion and empire, but rather according to the goodness and the mercy and the power and the strength of God. That's right, exactly. Dominion and stewardship are two sides really of the same coin, and we'll see that in Genesis. So the tension is that the Bible is a story about a God who tells his people to never make any images, don't make any graven images, and yet he makes humans in his image. What's going on there? We'll talk a little bit about that. What implications might it have that humans are made in the image of God? I'd like to play you a little song. And I would like for you to think about what this song communicates to you about its maker. terrible. (laughs) I was just thinking, if my son came to me one day and said, hey, dad, I made something and then played that. (laughs) Not that I I don't want to put too much pressure on him. Um, So what, what are your thoughts about that song? What does it tell you about its maker? He was sad. Hmm. Wow. That's very specific, <laughs> and, and perhaps, perhaps true. What else? Mm-hmm. 
Mm, yeah. What else? Mm. Yeah, it's personal, gentle. Yeah. Was in a very. Hmm. Hmm. He was at peace. Does the song inspire peace within you? I used to, uh, when James was, was little, he and I would listen to that almost every night. Um, and it's such, for me, it's just like such a meaningful song. And, you know, um, but it, it tells us something about its maker, doesn't it? And it, it affects something within us, within the world. It changes our emotional state. And it, 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 it powerfully kind of grabs you, I think, um, in a way that is not like a, like a tyrant grabbing you, but is like the gentle embrace of a lover. But perhaps, perhaps you've suffered, but you're, you're, you're embracing one another. I just think that it's amazing. Did you know that... Um, the first song that happens, the first poem is in Genesis. And it tells us something about our maker. Let me read this from the handout. This is from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. We've heard that word before over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And then we get the first song in the pages of Scripture. This is Hebrew poetry. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. What does that song, that poem, tell you about its maker? Just shout it out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And even the plants have seeds in them. So it's not just that the buffet is set, but that there is potential. There's potential that could unfold for more sustenance, for more life. What else? 
It's orderly and intentional. So when we get into Genesis, um, just before this section, we see that there are these six different days where God is separating. He is separating light from dark. He's separating the waters above from the waters below. He is uh, separating the waters from the dry land. He is creating, per Jeff's point, order. And then he provides inhabitants for the spaces that have been made. He's going about this in a very orderly way. And as the crown jewel, he makes humans. Not for their own sake. For them to exercise dominion. Dominion over and within creation, such that it flourishes. That's the goal. Flourishing. Which is really just a participation in the life of God that has existed eternally within God's very personhood. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, you know, there were other accounts in the ancient world of um, creation. Some of you will know about the Enuma Elish account. In Iraq, uh, there were some um, tablets found, four tablets there on the left. And this is a creation myth. It's, it's the oldest creation myth that we have apart from Genesis and it talks about the Babylonian gods, and it tells the tale of Marduk defeating the great dragon Tiamat. And so you can actually see the two figures there. Marduk is on the right, Tiamat is on the left. And the way that he defeats Tiamat, Marduk, I don't know if you've ever... Um, Use like a leaf blower to, you know, maybe I, only I've done this, to blow your son's mouth open. <laughs> First of all, it's pretty funny. And then you just feel bad because it's, anyways. Um, but he does this weird thing where he like blows Tiamat's mouth open and he takes an arrow and he throws it down Tiamat's throat. And it mortally wounds him. And then he just rips him in half. Which makes you wonder why he just didn't do that in the first place. The weird air-blowing thing. Nevertheless, um, he defeats Tiamat. And this, uh, this defeat of this dragon is the source of the world. So he takes one half of the body which makes the sky, and the other half makes the ground. Well, some other gods are, you know, not exactly pleased about things. They get tired, and they kill a god named Kingu. These are all really great recommendations for your firstborn, by the way. <laughs> so Kingu is killed, and his, his throat is slit. I mean, this is like a mafia movie. And his blood spills out onto the ground, and out of that, humanity is born. What does that tell you about its maker? (laughs) That is a poem, that is a song, a Mesopotamian piece of art that is a very different account than Genesis. So can you see how this would impact your vision of the world? If you were living in Mesopotamia and you were a farmer, your job 
was to feed the king, basically, who embodied Marduk. And so everything you did was to satiate him, and it would have been a him, of course, and if you did not obey, well, you might get your throat slit. You might have a leaf blower put up to your mouth. You might have, you know, an arrow thrown down your throat. This is quite a different concept than the Genesis story. Creation out of love spilling out from the inner life of the Trinity, creating a world full of potential and life, which is itself, to live in it, a participation within the life of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or creation out of conflict, creation out of violence, creation out of chaos. In the Genesis narrative, God actually subdues the chaos and makes something out of nothing. He brings order. Very different accounts. And thus, it gives a different account for what it means to be human. Because humans are made in the image of that God, not Marduk. So that's pretty radical. We've seen this passage already, Genesis chapter 1. We see the phrase, imago Dei, the image of God in verse 27. And this is where the phrase comes from. And if you can understand this concept and take it all the way through Scripture, you will see it come up again and again and again and again. So God made humanity both male and female in his image. It's not that the male alone reflects the image of God and the woman was an afterthought, nor is it the other way around, but together there is a reflection of the fullness of God, both as individuals and brought together in covenantal relationship. But you see, most people in the ancient world lived under a king, and having the authority to go out and carry out the will of the gods was the prerogative of the king alone. And so you lived in a world where either you simply had to be submitted to the authority of a king that was malicious, again, who was the embodiment of Marduk, or the vision of Genesis. So what I'd like to do now is play a video that gives you an understanding of the image of God that is much better than I can provide in the time that I have. And um, I've used this joke a million times, but this always feels like the history or the gym coach who has to, like, teach history, and he just plays a video. But um, <laughs> this is really good. So this is uh, it's the Bible Project. Many of you have seen the Bible Project. I've used them before. This is a really good summary on the image of God, and then we'll land the plane after this. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as 
the god. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. That's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly, that's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds 
really nice, but what does it really look like? So, practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says, this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So if you lived in... Okay. Um, well, let me just breeze through a few things here. I hope you enjoyed the video. But it gives such a great overview of the image of God as being something which all humans um, possessed by virtue of God's creative generosity of course, we chose to go the way of defining good and evil on our own terms. And the likeness of God was, was, was marred. The image of God in us was marred. And so the way in which we so often exercise dominion of creation is not rooted in flourishing, but in sort of securing our own good at the expense of others. But here are how a few thinkers have thought about the image of God. Catherine of Siena from the 14th century wrote, What made you establish man in so great a dignity? Certainly the incalculable love by which you have looked on your creature in yourself. You are taken with love for her, for by love indeed you created her. By love you have given her a being capable of tasting your eternal good. Beautiful quote. But it speaks to, again, that God creates... Out of love, God creates the potential for life to flourish. And again and again, <laughs> we undermine that. There is a, a resource um, from the Catholic Church, actually, which defines the image of God in this way. Being in the Imago Dei, the human individual possesses the dignity of a person who is not just something, but someone. That's a key distinction. He is capable of self-knowledge, of self-possession, and of freely giving himself and entering into communion with other persons. And he is called by grace to a covenant, which we'll talk about next week, with his creator to offer him a response of faith and love that no other creature can give in his stead. The humans are distinctive among creatures because of the good that we can do and make and also the evil which we can exact. But this distinction of not just being something, but someone, we are really good about instrumentalizing everything. But one of the implications of the Imago Dei, of humans being made in the image of God, is that every individual is shot through with eternal dignity and worth. We need to talk to our children and grandchildren about this. They need to hear this. They are not defined by what others say about them or what they're able to achieve in life. This is the starting point for their self-understanding, that they are made in the image of God, and nothing they do to themselves or otherwise will change who they are in the eyes of God. They're made in his image, and that is worth talking about.
So how else do humans reflect the image of God? Well, many thinkers throughout history have talked about we reflect the image of God through rationality, through consciousness. God is a a kind of rational being of order. God is conscious. We reflect the image of God through our creativity. So you think of the Beethoven song that we played a moment ago. Insofar as anything is true, beautiful, or good, it reflects and participates in the truth and the beauty and the goodness of God. So painting, good painting matters. Good music matters. Good architecture matters. These things, beauty, are not just in the eye of the beholder, but instead it participates in and is caught up in this greater order of truth and beauty and goodness. And so exercising creativity and artistry is actually a way in which we reflect the image of God to the world around us. Also, our understanding of morality, of knowing right and wrong. They talked about this in the video. And given that we are contingent, per your point, Doreen, we are not our own maker, there is a sense in which we have to submit to the way things, the the way God has made the world. And this submission, and I think this is the teaching of Scripture, is a form of slavery to Christ in which we find perfect freedom. This is how the prayer book frames it. Finally, the image of God is ultimately a vocation. It's a vocation to exercise dominion, stewardship, reflecting the glory of God to the surrounding world. And we can do this not just in coming together and singing songs, holding Bible studies, but we can do this through every form of work imaginable unless it's just completely reprehensible. Human trafficking cannot reflect the goodness of God. But all of our work can become vehicles for the glory of God, expressing the glory of God, and can bear witness to the fact that God has made us in his image. So C.S. Lewis has a great quote, which I'll end it with. He says this, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken." It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, he says, it is with the all and the circumspection circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are, are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. That's remarkable. Can you imagine how that would change civic discourse if we believed it? Social media, if we believed it. Our work relations, if we believed it. So I'm going to end on that note. 
And I want that quote to go with you this week. As you think about the work that you're doing, as you think about engaging with your neighbor, this doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't engage in vigorous debate and try to live out our convictions in communities. Of course we should. But I, as I suspect perhaps you are, am concerned about the state of our country and the way in which even the church is so often fracturing along the same fault lines of surrounding institutions. Our call, per Genesis 1, is to reflect the image of God and to honor the image of God in the other person. So be thinking about how you can do that this week. Next week, we're going to talk about covenant. Because the image of God has become marred by human sin and brokenness, God himself chooses to come down and to thicken up the relationship once again with humanity. And he does that through covenants. And we're going to learn about those next week. So thank you for coming and um, hope to see you then. Oh, good, good. Go out into 